I mean, I love the fact that in the middle of loads of verbal sparring and literary jokes, there is a moment where the audio track dims and it is just the sound of people hitting each other with saucepans for about a minute. <laughs> and it's just a full-on silent film comedy sequence. Um, that sounds the, like my sex life. At the, height, <laughs> at the height of drama where they're trying to kill Napoleon. Um, I just think it's, like I say, brave. I keep coming back to that. Two Fat Ladies, it's episode 88. Hey everyone and welcome to this episode of Flixwatcher Podcast. Today I am joined by Alex. <laughs> nice. Ollie. Hello. And Helen. Meow. And we're going to be talking about love and death. Guys, if you want to get in touch, join us on Twitter at FlixWatcherPod. Come and visit us on our website, FlixWatcher.tv and go to iTunes. Subscribe to us, review and share with your friends because sharing is caring. As always, films reviewed in this podcast were available to stream on Netflix UK at the time of recording. There may be bad language and there may be spoilers. You have been warned. Hello, film fans. Welcome to this episode of Flix Watcher Pod. In our studio today, we have Alex and Ollie. If you would like to tell the lovely listeners where they might have heard your voices before, please. In their dreams, in their wildest fantasies. Um, <laughs> and also, uh, well, together in the, the sex bit of my podcast, The Modern Man, M-A-N-N, it's a pun on my name, uh, Alex is our resident sex spurt. Uh, I am indeed. So I answer listeners' questions uh, about everything from uh, why they might compulsively sneeze every time they orgasm to uh, how to go about arranging a threesome for the first time. Uh, to, Interesting. Yeah, how to keep it up, how to get down to it, how to go in, out, in, out and shake it all about. Um, I don't then- remember the question about how do I shake it all about. <laughs> Think people are born up. knowing. I didn't, I didn't know you needed to shake it all about. Is well, that- you learn all sorts of things, let me tell you. Apart from with a hokey-cokey. Uh, in out and out shake all about if you do too much hokey cokey then it's very very difficult to uh, gain an erection so (laughs) avoid avoid too much of that Um, I also am a co-host on a podcast on Radio 1 a BBC Radio 1 called Unexpected Fluids uh, where me and a lovely gay chap called Riyadh Kalaf um, go through real life tales of people's sexual fails and it's a comedy show so we have a a good giggle together Um, but then there's an educational aspect in that we discuss how sex portrayed by the media is all about uh, everything being perfect and polished and glossy and uh, without gloop and we all know that in real life it's very very different there's clumsy there's, there's fumbles bloop. and bloop. tumbles yeah yeah all sorts of ooze in, uh, alongside the ooze um, so it's basically an honest frank conversation about sex uh, how it doesn't always turn out how you'd planned uh, and what we can do collectively to make it all much more enjoyable for us I mean, personally, I'm just grateful if it happens at all, generally. But I, th- I think that's why I've learned a lot actually doing the podcast is, um, you know, I, I, when people write in about these things that really matter to them, yeah. it's not just because you, you can dismiss it easily. And so it's a question about a weird fetish. You know, this person wants to experiment with foot play or being dominated or anal sex, whatever it is. Um, but of course, to that person, this is something that they care about enough that they've listened to Alex giving advice over a number of years now and written into us to hear her take on it to help them in the bedroom. Yeah. And I've been sort of seduced, really, into learning about stuff that, <laughs> frankly, I was... I mean, so occasionally, it's just got a bit too grim, even for me, when we go right deep into the orifices and there's certain things people want to know about that are very um, precise. 
But in general terms, the, the tips that I've learned have been really useful. I don't necessarily mean in the bedroom, but I just mean as an understanding of my fellow human. Yeah. And essentially, if I may boil Alex's advice down, and she does know a lot, but essentially what it often comes down to week after week after week is it have better communication with your partner. Yeah. And it's astonishing, actually, how many problems and questions can be boiled down into that. It's amazing how many people are more prepared to ask us a question about what they really want to do in the bedroom rather than talk to their partner about it. Yeah, I often say that sex is the most common form of transport because it's how we all got here. And yet so many people, even though they were all the product of a cum shot, will <laughs> not talk about sex. With uh, their partners and, even, yeah. Or, or with themselves. Lots of people just, the, the, their relationship with their own body, with the knowledge of their own desires is far more sparse than it ought to be for them to have a satisfying, fulfilling and, and honest life. Uh, and by speaking more openly about these things, um, you really can try transform people's existences. I know that sounds like an overstatement, but um, sex is about more than what, just what goes on in the bedroom. And it's about more than just a physical act. It's how you feel about yourself and understand yourself and how you relate to those closest to you in a lot of circumstances. So, mm, I mean, this all sounds terribly worthy. I mean, I should say there are episodes where literally Alex has just foisted some lubricant into my hands and said, what's that? It's amazing. It's really <laughs> sticky. Yeah. Um, it's, not like, it's not like the most constantly serious show. Yeah, but there's we, a lot we cover... of pissing around, pissing ourselves and talking about piss. Yes, but we cover, you know, sex in a serious, in a serious way when it's required, in, in a lighthearted way in when an appropriate. Way. Yes, I, I think so. Providing um, sex education to people who probably had a pretty terrible sex education at school. Well, just by virtue of being British, actually, yeah. mm. you know, and 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 having this sort of disease that we don't like talking about stuff, generally speaking, we even as Kobe says to our own partner, well. <laughs> we, do, we do talk about STDs too. So we're here talking about love and death. Sometimes in love, there is sex. Yes. Um, I'm not going to go to the death side of that. So <laughs> well, it's a bit yeah. grim. I don't know mm -hmm. if you've had any. Yes, we've, covered, we've yeah, covered everything. Well, cool. Yeah, we talked about. Well, actually, the, another word for orgasm is little death. So yeah, yeah. petit more. Yeah, precisely. I did French, or looked in a French book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and love and death, the as as written and directed by Woody Allen. Mm. Ollie, this was your choice. Can you give us a two-minute synopsis and tell us why you why you chose this film? I can't. Well, I can give you a two-minute synopsis of the plot as I understand it, but of course the whole thing's a parody of Tolstoy and I've actually never read War and Peace. So oh, I, I who has? Who yeah. has? Have you? I didn't even think that was... Okay, good. Keep going. Didn't I've even read, notice. I've already okay. <laughs> um, so... Um, <laughs> I definitely know Toy Story more than Tolstoy. Well, Yay. actually, having seen the BBC One adaptation by Andrew Davis of War and Peace helped a little bit in understanding some of the gags. Right. Um, but I mean, you don't... It, 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 the film... Uh, in Woody Allen's canon comes after Sleeper and everything you always want to know about sex and yeah. the slapstick stuff. Yeah. And just immediately before uh, Annie Hall and Manhattan and the sort of widely regarded critical purple patch of those were his best movies. Yeah. It's right in the middle of that. And it feels like it's right in the middle of that tonally. So there is a story. Woody plays uh, Boris Dmitrovich who is the kind of weedy younger brother of Mikhail and Ivan in rural Russia. He's a bit of a dweeb and a nerd. He doesn't want to go to war when war comes with Napoleon, but he does. He's in love with Diane Keaton, who loves someone else, and then they plot to kill Napoleon. That's basically the plot. Um, but, <laughs> well done. Big, thank you. But yeah. because the plot is... is um, because the film is in that line of his work, absolutely straddling the slapstick and the verbal comedy... Really, the plot's not that important in the way that the plot of Sleeper isn't that important. There's a lot of stuff in this which is set up some visual gags or yeah. basically ideas, which, and, and this is why I think Woody Allen's a great filmmaker because he does films that don't work 
but in the films that don't work, you can always see the genesis of the idea. You know, he's a filmmaker that takes an idea and makes it into a reality. And generally speaking, I'd say in Love and Death, these ideas work. It's, you know, whatever you think of um, the idea of a parody of Russian literature across, uh, you know, 100 minutes, um, it's funny. It succeeds as a funny film. It makes me laugh every time I see it. I chose it because... It was my favourite film when I was 20. Oh, wow. And so when I went to university, I had it on VHS and it would be the one that I would show everybody. And I saw that it was on Netflix and I was like, okay, this is an opportunity. We've been invited onto this show to rewatch it. And I haven't seen it for 17 years. Mm. And of course, I didn't like it as much as I liked it when I was 20. But that in itself was interesting. I was watching it thinking, why when I was 20 did I like it? the funniest thing ever. Yeah. And I think it's partly the sort of stoner kind of, you know, if you watch it two in the morning, it's intrinsically funnier. But it's also that it makes you think you're clever. And, you know, as an undergraduate, I thought I was getting all the jokes about Russian literature despite never having actually read Tolstoy. (laughs) It does that. And I think a lot of Woody Allen films from that era do that. They flatter the audience's intelligence and say, probably because he was largely talking to a New York intellectual audience, you get these jokes, you're clever. Here's a funny joke for you and then we'll follow it up with a knob gag. I think um, one of the great things about Netflix is that you can delve deep. You can see the films you haven't seen. I've never seen this before. Um, but you can also revisit the films that you did. Like you say, had on VHS. For me, um, um, would have been recorded from Channel 4 and I would have tried to edit out all the adverts in between. But, <laughs> you know, I would have had them on VHS and watched them to death. Like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was, was, was one of those. I love that movie. Um, so it's, that's one thing I really love about Netflix as well as the new stuff which they bring to the table, um, you know, Pixar stuff, whatever. So it's really cool that you've, you've chosen it for that reason. And it's always interesting to see your thoughts on a film that you used to love when you were younger and then revisit it based on not having seen it for decades, over a decade. And it's, do you feel, you know, does it feel a bit sad that it didn't hit you in the same way as when you were younger? Not really, because I think the other thing that's happened alongside me maturing in that time is comedy is just much more widely available and much more sophisticated sure. now. And so this, well, you're talking about 2001-ish. Yeah. I mean, so even though, Friends, even though it's, Friends was pretty much the zenith of comedy yeah. at the time. So even though it's a film from the 70s, yeah. if you wanted clever, smart comedy that also had knob gags, really, I'd say you had to kind of look to The Simpsons, I suppose. And actually, what's quite interesting about this, I, whereas now, point being, there's loads of comedies that sort of tickle those boxes and that are for people that like a word joke and slapstick. Um but what I found quite interesting about watching this was that it reminded me most of animated comedy mm. um, because it straddles those two worlds. And so there are moments, uh, for example, that during the, the big uh, war on the battlefield, um, there's, there's a gag where uh, Woody playing Boris down in the field says something along the lines of, oh, the battlefield looks so different when you're in the middle of it to how it does to the generals up in the hill. Cut to shot of sheep being seen from the top of a hill. All the soldiers being seen as sheep by the generals. That's like an animated comedy joke, isn't it? It's a visual gag that people don't do anymore in live action comedy, but actually we're saturated in it because of things like YouTube. And that's like, it's like an Instagram joke, that joke. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's full of little moments like that. Alex, what are your thoughts? Well, I have to admit that I had never before seen a Woody Allen film. What? Yeah, this was my initiation. I've been resistant. I mean, please watch Annie Hall. That's all I'd say. Like, forget everything else and just watch Annie Hall. Especially you. 
Actually, I have seen bits of Annie Hall for sartorial reasons, but um, <laughs> there are a number of reasons that I have resisted watching uh, Woody's canon, for want of a, a, a more repulsive phrase. Um, and one of them is because of the allegations made against Woody Allen. Yep. Uh, and when I when I told friends that I needed to watch this film, uh, it started a really interesting debate about. Um, for a start, uh, how much credibility should be given to the claims made against Woody Allen? I mean, I am, uh, as a feminist, somebody who is very inclined to believe anybody making a claim of uh, 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 of, of abuse or assault. Certainly pub- yeah. in the public domain. Yes, uh, under the circumstances that, that pertain to this, yes. Uh, and Sorry, I'm trying to pick my words really carefully here. Um, Woody Allen's relationship with his previous stepdaughter, uh, who is now his wife, um, is undeniably unusual. Uh, untangling how appropriate or inappropriate it is is a very difficult thing to do without knowing them personally. So uh, the, the debate about Woody brings up... Well, the debate about Woody is the same debate about Gary Glitter or Michael Jackson, isn't it? It's sort of, do you revisit the art of someone who has had a, you know, a very serious allegation like that made against them in the public eye? And in Gary Glitter's case, not an allegation, but something that actually definitely happened and he went to prison for. Yes, that's why um, I think this is a, a but, more complicated But I, to me, the answer to that question is, it depends how good the art is. I know that's not the moral answer, but like in, Gar- <laughs> in Gary Glitter's case, the music's not good enough to listen to it. In Michael Jackson's case, Whatever Happened, Billie Jean is a great song. And I think in Woody Allen's case, some of the later work, hmm, you can probably live without. I think as a filmmaker, what he was doing was so audacious and ambitious that you can't just say, I'm just going to pretend this art didn't happen. It was so influential. And also, I think there are some of his work, which I can say to you if you've never seen any of it before, is icky, viewed from this revisionist well, we, standpoint. Yeah, first, we did um, Manhattan recently. Yes, well, Manhattan's the one I was thinking of. very dubious on the rewatch. I'd go as far to say it's a cry so, for help. So the story of Manhattan is Woody Allen, a.k.a. 50-year-old, Woody Allen is going out with a high schooler and all his friends weren't his friends weren't saying dude what the fuck are you doing you're going out with a high schooler they're going oh she seems quite nice mm. um, and I watched Manhattan ages ago and thought oh this is quite a good film looks quite nice nicely shot but on the rewatch for really one of the earliest episodes of Flix Watcher I was just like I dude it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I yeah. just did, well, not, did not go on with it. There are uncomfortable lines yeah. in Love and Death. Uh, are there? Yes, there it's are. It's so comic book and silly. Well, there... Uh, These sex there, scenes yeah, in it the, are carry-on style <laughs> sex scenes. Yeah, but well, okay, so but in, what's in, uncomfortable in, about that? Not, they're, nothing. They're, they're childish almost. They're, mm. they're almost like a schoolboy I'd say, though, that the, the women in it are empowered in the sex scene. So what's the bit that makes you feel bad? There were two lines that made me feel particularly uncomfortable and, and a little bit nauseous because I thought the joke would have worked. If Sound you'd like substi- Woody now. If you'd substitute- I feel nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> I can't watch my own movies without feeling nauseous. That's not a bad impression. That's very good. Yeah. Um, it- I think that the joke would have still worked if you'd substituted a slightly different age, for example. Uh, there's a bit where an old man is asked about um, sex and he says something along the lines of, uh, uh, I had to live many years and after many trials and tribulations, I've come to the conclusion that the best thing in life is blonde 12-year-old girls, mm. two of them wherever possible. Yeah, yeah but um, the joke's on him. Like at that moment, that's, the la- that's his last words before he croaks. You're not supposed to think, oh, those are great last words to say. 
you're supposed to think what a waste of your life that you've, you're just basically an old pervert and you've been put as, this is a, a, a man of the cloth dying. So he's been elevated to a position and it's, it's deliberately puncturing that pomposity, isn't it? It's not supposed to be like, yeah, good on you for fencing 12-year-old girls. That's how I took it anyway. No, it's not framing that as something to be celebrated, but it's still very difficult when you know, when you've heard in the press as much about Woody Allen as is circulating currently, to wonder about the mind of a man who invented that joke and chose to reference 12-year-old blonde girls specifically. It's, there's another But it, but it bit is also set at a period of time where 12-year-old girls were getting married. I mean, that's the other joke that's going on. Is Unfortunately, it's jokes about now period comedy. is still a time where 12-year-old girls are getting married yeah, in yeah, certain countries. Yeah, but that's not his concern in this film. His concern but, in this film is to do a, a costume drama and take the piss out of the, the times in which it's set. So that's, I, I do think that's part of what he's doing. I, I think, can appreciate that this works on lots of different levels, and I know what you're saying, but I can't deny that from my point of view as someone who's uh, unfortunately main impression of Woody Allen in the modern world is a man who uh, against whom some serious allegations have been made it's just really difficult not for that joke not to land in an uncomfortable manner with me uh, similarly the scene where um there's a tussle with uh, Woody Allen and and his female partner um and someone interrupts it and he says, oh, hold on, hold on, there's no problem. She's 18. And when you're thinking about the mind of that man in his private life, it's really difficult to distance yourself from how that might have affected his work. It's just, uh, you, you do wonder whether it's an echo of reality, that's all. I mean, I, I'd, I'd, like, I'd love you to watch some more Woody Allen films because there's some seriously uncomfortable stuff in the latest. Yeah. I mean, well, he's very open about those issues that he has in his films. He makes films about those issues. It's I mean, not like hidden say, away. Yeah, Manhattan one, whatever works is a very modern one that has Larry David, who's when when Woody Allen's not in the film, there's typically a Woody Allen person. Yeah, a proxy. A, a proxy, yeah. And that was that was uh, Larry David, who was in his sixties, going out with someone who was in their twenties. So legal, quote unquote, but still like, dude, what's going on? Mm. Um, but the so this, I mean, this argument. But that about, was a terrible film, anyway. Uh, yeah, it was. But the this thing about there's three stars, the um, separating the artist from the arts is one for me that which is always which is always a difficult conversation i was in the gym today and they like, say it wasn't billy it wasn't billy jean but it was another michael jackson song that came on i was like yeah this is this is good to lift the weights too but then i was like i still have that thing of like michael jackson was my favorite pop star as growing up um but i still think oh, dude just just well, why well i'm was am i don't know i'm undecided on how no uh woody allen um yeah I, it's difficult. It's it's a difficult one. Um, I don't have all the answers. No. All I know is that I experience simultaneously being entertained with feeling uncomfortable at those moments. That was my experience I of think it. That's, I think that's a bit a lot. I think that's a lot of the problem. Um, one, I think the problem with people like Woody Allen is that he is the creator of the art as well. So it's not like um, there's a lot of like sitcoms where one character, one one actor was. A perpetrator but you can almost like separate them from the rest of the cast because the cast was there to do their thing but Woody Allen was he wrote directed sang the theme tune or he did everything behind it so it kind of if you if you're accepting Woody Allen then you're accepting everything he does but with um I want to say like I'd still love to watch the Cosby show but he was like, Bill Cosby was behind everything that happened to do with that show does that make sense? Yes, in some way, it's a strength of influence yeah. upon the, the, the work that has been so, created so like the film like um Usual Suspects, for example, with Kevin Spacey in it. I'm going to watch Usual, I'm going to watch Usual Suspects again because it's a fucking great film. Kevin Spacey's in it, but he had 
just to play that character of Verbal Kint in that film. So I'm not going to really think about... But would you watch American Beauty again? Um, yes. But it would be seen on with very different eyes. To me, that, that's still... He didn't direct it. He plays no. the main, his main person behind it. Um, we're kind of going off track yeah. with Love and Death. But So what do you feel about Love and Death as a film... Trying, well, to, trying to think outside Barbie. of the... Well, one of the other reasons that I've been resistant to watching Woody Allen in the past is because he's kind of grouped in mentally for me with Morrissey in that he's <laughs> somebody who's undeniably talented and clever, but also so smugly grating that you could use him to shred cheddar. And both of these men are um, artists that previous boyfriends of mine have absolutely revered to the point of uh, annoyance you know they've just they've been prostrate at the feet of Woody Allen and uh, <laughs> hopefully not literally and and Morrissey and it's um it has just put me off really strongly um there were a lot of complex feelings I experienced whilst <laughs> watching Love and Death but um, you brought a lot of baggage to watching this film may I say <laughs> oh my god yeah it I'm is a well silly comedy about allowance. go on yeah but I did actually find myself a really appreciating did you laugh it's a comedy. Did you laugh? That is the main test. Riley, I appreciated the <laughs> I appreciated the clever linguistic jokes. Um I also liked the juxtaposition, as you mentioned earlier, of these very philosophical, finely crafted, um, carefully honed jests alongside this very clownish slapstick stuff. Um the whole comedic approach of it. I could really, really see why people I'd been attracted to liked it. And then that made me feel ultra weird. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, where does this rank in, in your Woody Allen uh, canon? Have you seen this before? I've seen this before, yeah. Um, I don't think it's as good as Sleeper, but it's it's made from that, it's that kind of era of it. Um, but I mean, I I quite like this film. And it's like you've mentioned on it, it's one of those films that, it rewards you for knowing the references and you're like, well, oh, that's a clever little thing on that. And it, it's very much a like a film student's kind of favourite film. Um, it was quite a relief Were watching it. Were you a film it. student at 20, Ollie? No, but I, I, I was studying English literature, but I, sure. I wanted to study film. Okay. But I, I actually even had on my UCAS form to study English and film together and then I never got the place. So I ended up doing English. But I always thought, if ever I do a postgrad, it's going to be in film and I'll get to watch films all day. Um, and I think also the student mentality is kind of important because even though Woody Allen's about 35, I think, when he made this, um, it, it's, Hard kind, life. it's like yeah, it's like he wrote it when he was sort of 17, 18. And I, and I think he probably did because um, I don't, have you seen Shadows and Fog? Which was, um, I mean, really a much more difficult watch, which is an expressionist um, film that he made in the early 90s with Madonna. No, Um, I've not seen that one. It's weird, but it's got some great gags in it. And that is based on a play that he wrote called Death, which he wrote as a teenager. And this has the same vibe. Uh, It has Death as a character. It's got these sort of slightly um, theatrical jokes in it um, that seem to me to come from the brain of someone who's a late teenager or early 20s. So I, I have a feeling that a lot of the ideas in this probably got put in a script, they got put in a drawer. And then, you know, he 15 does, years later, we have the permission have to make drawer. it. Have you seen the Woody Allen documentary? Right, there is the... Right. He, did, he does literally have the drawer. I'm like, oh yeah, that was an idea. Let's put that in. And we're yeah. back to who's yeah. seen Woody Allen's drawers. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry. Um, it was quite a relief watching it that um, 
it, it was quite okay in in terms of obviously the, the lines you mentioned it, it could have been much worse um going back and revisiting it when um it's quite quite he said that at the time this was the funniest film that he'd made so I this thought was it was kind very saturated. I did really appreciate that. I felt like there wasn't a line that was in it at all that wasn't that didn't have some comedic value or mm. some purpose. Which takes there me back to the Simpsons preamble. and those sorts of yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. It's that. dense with gags that move the plot along, which you don't tend to see in comedies these days. And some really ridiculously funny ones, like being shot out of a cannon and things like that, and getting your sword tangled up, are, are really funny. They're simple, but they're. Funny, but also audacious. Like I say, death is a character in it, and it's easy to sort of say that like this is a normal thing. It's not a normal thing. Like an audience who went along to see a film comedy in the seventies, especially from the guy who brought you everything you wanted to know about sex, probably weren't expecting a monologue about death delivered to death in person <laughs> at the end of the film. It's quite. It's a brave thing to do, and now it makes sense because it's Woody Allen, and that's the kind of thing he does. Yeah. But at the time, it was basically taking, yeah, sort of intelligent liberal New York stand-up and putting it in a mainstream comedy release, um, which strikes me as an interesting choice. Well, also, he's stolen death from The Seventh Seal, which is obviously another one of his favourite places to steal from uh, Bergman films. Yeah. yeah, and But the death is in a white sheet as opposed to the black one. Yeah, and all those references completely passed me by, but I know that he's obsessed with Bergman, so I imagine there was a lot of that going on. Um, It's also stolen in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Death. Yes, and playing the game to save life. I've never seen something very Seal. influential. Um, the but I think some of the problem. I think some of the problems relate to potentially Woody Allen in his mindset. But I think some of the problems also relate to this is the seventies, and some things that watched then don't simply wouldn't watch now. Mm-hmm. And we, I mean, a film we watched um, recently was um, it was Stir Crazy, an eighties film. Richard Pryor and Gene and June Wilder. Neither it's of us awful. Had, neither of us had seen it before, but we were like, "Well, it's going to be casually racist, sexist, homophobic, misogynistic, all this kind of thing." And they actually, it actually was surprisingly wasn't that. But when you when you revisit an old film in, of the eighties and seventies, you kind of think, "Well, I'm buckling. You're going to get something that you're going to go at." And I think some of those those comments were those things you said. Um, that certainly wouldn't wash Woody Allen if he if he was to remake this now. He certainly wouldn't put those lines in there because that's uh or perhaps he would yeah he probably um, would he seems like i mean he's somebody he's who's always denied the allegations made against well, him well, and woody he's, allen wouldn't make this film now i mean that's the point isn't it woody allen's evolved as a filmmaker to something completely different no it's a different style of filmmaking you know, he just that's why this film is so precious to me because it, it, it exactly straddles the two types of filmmaking that he made and it's the only one really that is sort of 50 percent of each i mean i love the fact that in the middle of loads of verbal sparring and literary jokes there is a moment where the audio track dims and it is just the sound of people hitting each other with saucepans for about a minute. <laughs> and it's just a full-on silent film comedy sequence. Um, that sounds the, like my sex life. At the, height, <laughs> at the height of drama where they're trying to kill Napoleon. Um, I just think it's, like I say, brave. I keep coming back to that. But I do think it, it, at the time it must have felt like a really original piece of filmmaking. Sure. And I think some of that verve is still there, albeit now you watch it and you think, it's only 100 minutes long as well. So you watch it and you kind of, or it's even less actually, I yeah. think. So you watch it and you kind of think, I'd take 20 minutes off this and it would be episode one in a series of things where you spoof a different novel each week. You know, sure. that's kind of the style of it. But at the time, like to make a film where you had to have a big film crew and go on location and do all this stuff, it was an audacious thing to do. The other thing as well that I think is worth mentioning whilst we're criticising, well, not criticising, it's not fair because I can totally see where you're coming from and, and Woody Allen has a context now which is different. So it's, it's a legitimate thing to do. But looking at it through this modern lens, whilst we're doing that, 
The other thing to remember, I think, is that he's actually a very inclusive filmmaker for the 70s. You know, he writes amazing roles for women, always has. Mm. Uh, more women have won Best Actress Oscars in Woody Allen films than in any other filmmaker's movies. That's an interesting point. And Diane Keaton in this movie is incredible yeah, and great. is given yeah. laughs in a way that most male comedians writing things for their muse would not, you know, yeah, she's they would the, hold it for themselves, wouldn't they? Yeah, because because she's the object of desire too. She's the, she's certainly sexualized, but she's funny. She's allowed to be funny and she's brilliant. She's also allowed to have a high sex drive. Yes, exactly. And that's the other thing. Yeah, the women in the film enjoy sex and it's on their terms. Um, and also even, I mean, it's only a brief moment, but even in terms of um, racial integration as well, there's that joke. And it is a joke where there's a black army drill sergeant yeah. uh, who's training the Russian army and he's a proper kind of jive-talking New York-style African-American. Now, the joke is obviously, hmm, that's an incongruous bit of casting. That's the joke. <laughs> but he was doing it. Yeah. He thought, you know, let's, let's have a black actor play that part. And the joke is not, you know, let's laugh because he's black. The joke is everyone is saying... Let's bring modern sensibility to a period tale. Um, I think maybe let's head to the scores at this point. Sure. So these are, uh, well, we'll welcome you to the spreadsheet of dreams. <laughs> All of the scores are out of five. You can have a decimal place if you wish. And we will start with recommendability for you, Ollie. So out of five, how much would you recommend this? I think this is a film that everyone could see once. So yes, I would put this at five. Uh, Alex? Artistically, I found this a really interesting uh, and arguably important film for me to see. And I enjoyed uh, finally discovering what all the Woody Allen fuss is about artistically. Uh, however, can I see myself going out of my way to recommend that people watch the films of Woody Allen. They're looking for a number here, Alex. <laughs> One. <laughs> Helen. So I have to score this in in my kind of scoring of Woody Allen with that. Obviously, Annie Hall would be a five. Annie Hall is better, I can see yeah. that. Yeah. Annie Hall's the masterpiece. Yeah. Um, um, and also... I I do think out of the slapstick ones that Sleeper is probably more of my favourite sort of one this but it is it is a really interesting film and like you say where it comes in his career it's just a really really interesting time um, for him and the films that he made so I'm going to go three and a half for that one um, I'm going to go 2.9 I think I enjoyed it more than I thought I, was, I thought I was going to to be honest with you Um I've seen Sleeper. I wasn't that big a fan of his slapstick stuff. Uh, my first entry into Woody Allen was Annie Hall, which is, I guess, is just setting the bar really high because I'd heard lots about him, but you know, in my family, we just hadn't seen. You know, it was like Transformers, and then it was like the Cosby Show, and then it was the A Team, and then you know, it was um, Friends. But so Woody Allen never kind of feeds on the radar, and he just gets getting award after award after award, and then finally succumbed to Annie Hall, and I was just like, shit, this is amazing. But then everything else since that is rubbish. Not no, rubbish, but everything else since that. They've just made didn't... good films since Sorry, then. I'm, 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 I played it a bit hard. Just but... briefly putting the word for Bullets Over Broadway as well. Yeah, that's great. Well, yeah. Actually, genuinely, as a, I, I if we're you... talking great films, I think Annie Hall and Bullets Over Broadway. Uh, I, think think I really Broadway like Midnight won, in Paris. I think Bullets mm. Over Broadway, where, where he won the Oscar, and I was like, I don't know who this Woody Allen guy is. Um, I love Midnight in Paris. And Sweet and Low Down is so, great. So that got, is an offbeat choice. He's yeah. got good films, but I prefer the kind of 
let's be cerebral in Manhattan vibe to the to the slapstick vibe. Yeah, but what's wrong with let's be cerebral and then make jokes Slap. about a guy who's obsessed by herring? I think <laughs> that's <laughs> that the perfect funny. combination. That was funny. When uh, he goes to bed talking to the herring, that's a good gag. So recommendability score, um, yeah, two point nine. Like I say, I just Annie Hall's there. Midnight in Paris is there. This isn't for a few different reasons. Um, I think there's better slapstick. I think there's better spoof stuff that I would recommend higher. Mm-hmm. Naked Gun, Airplane, mm. Black Dynamite. Um, repeat viewing score, Ollie. Well, that's a harder one for me because, uh, as I said, when I was 21, I could quote you the whole film and I'd seen it 10 times. Mm. Um, I now, having seen it at the age of 37, would probably happily see it again, but probably not till I'm in my 50s. So what does that say? <laughs> um, I'll give it a repeat viewing score of three on balance, to be fair. But in my life right now, it's probably a two. Alex, will you watch this again? I think I'm more likely to watch other films from Woody Allen's oeuvre. Yeah. I've um, got the DVD box set, you can borrow it. <laughs> um, however, because I found some of the lines exceptionally clever and they were delivered at a really speedy pace, I would perhaps watch it again to make sure there was nothing I had missed. And also I'd like to watch it again in the context of the conversation that we've had with uh, with that with that influence. So I'm gonna go I'm gonna go two for me. Sure. H. Uh I'm going to give it a three. Uh I've seen it before. Um I did have it on VHS, part of my Woody Allen collection. Um and it must have been it's on DVD as well. I can't remember. It's been a few years since I've seen it. Um, I quite enjoyed watching it again, and I probably will watch it again, maybe in like another ten years, or maybe not. I'm not yeah. sure. So was that three? Yeah. Um, I think what you found, Ollie, in, in terms of the films you used to watch as a kid, when it was on VHS, and it's one of the ten or even twenty films meant that over the summers meant that even you, 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 how many times have you seen Fight Club? Oh, too many. How many times in a in, what's the most you've seen it in, in a week? Maybe like five or six times. Yeah. <laughs> so it was one of those things you just used to watch the same film or mm. the same episode of a TV show so many times. But now, a older b time is precious. Ability to watch literally anything you want at a moment's notice really depletes that step. Um, I can't see myself watching it again anytime soon. Um, I might do. I'm not. I'm definitely. It's, I will watch it again at some point, but I can't tell you when that's going to happen. So that's, that's a one for me, I think. Um, small screen score. Do you want an explanation of the small screen score? No, I think I get it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it works on the small screen fine. Yeah. I mean, it's not a film that you need to see in the cinema, let's put it that way. Sure. Um, and actually, the intimacy of some of the shots, it's almost like they were made for the small screen anyway. There's a, um, a scene where... Uh, Diane Keaton is actually crying real tears, real acting crying tears, uh, but it's a hugely funny piece of script where they're both staring down the barrel of the lens of the camera and I'd say that probably works better actually in your sitting room than it would have done on the cinema screen. Is that a scene where she's looking at the screen but Woody Allen's looking off to the side? Yes. And I- The joke being, he's a spoiler, but you know, if you listen to this show then you've probably seen the film. He survived the war and he wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to be dead and now yeah. he's got to marry him and have sex with him all the time. <laughs> um, so... What's that give you? Um, what's that rating for you? For five? Uh, small screen. Well, I mean, it's, it's strange to say five because I wouldn't say brilliant small screen entertainment, but yeah, it works just as well on the small screen as big screen. So yeah, five. What the hell, Alex? Do you feel you missed out by not seeing this in the cinema? I think that this would have been an interesting film to watch in the company of other people because mm-hmm. I would have liked to debate factor. it. Um, I mean, that's comedy, isn't it? Actually, yeah. In fairness, yeah. I watched this on my own on my laptop at home. Um, 
and I think I would have welcomed other people's thoughts and input. I think I, I would have appreciated the film in a different way had you been there, for example, Ollie. Um, so I think it missed out in the... I think I missed something from it in the manner in which I watched it. Uh, so I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it three there, 3.5 maybe. That Yeah, that, that collective experience is something we've talked about a yeah. few times. Um, not necessarily that you need to be there for the visuals, but to be there in a horror film when other people are scared or be there in a good comedy when other people are laughing helps, can help to augment something. Um, I'm going to give it a five um, for everything that Ollie said. And also as someone who tried to build up an extensive Woody Allen collection uh, many, many years ago and found it quite difficult to get hold of mm. some titles, mm. I'm now quite pleased that some of them are on Netflix, should you wish to find them. It's quite a, quite a load actually on Netflix I spent now. a lot of money on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> what was the one that was really hard to get hold of? Um, Play it again, Sam. No, I mean, I had that on video. It was trying to get them from VHS to DVD and they only really released the the first and second box sets. Mm. And then they just didn't, they haven't really released much of the 90s stuff, I don't think, on DVD mm. or at least when I was trying to get hold of them and update them. Yeah, I'm saying five. I can't see any real benefit of seeing it in the cinema. I don't think it was that funny. So the collective experience would have kind of not been a factor really for me. Engagement score. How engaged were you whilst watching it? Well, having said that I loved this film in the past, even in the past, I remember thinking it was a bit like a box of chocolates. You certainly wouldn't want it to go on any longer. Um, and, you know, I sort of feel like there's sometimes with musicals, I love musicals. Mm. And I Have love you Disney seen films. Yet? I haven't. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, <laughs> but um, in the same way as with musicals, what was that Stephen Sondheim one? Into the Woods recently. That was like, I enjoyed the first 10 minutes of that and then was completely nauseated by it because it was just too much. Kobe's huh. um, getting out his Hamilton t-shirt. <laughs> just, just carries it around. I know what it is. I don't need to see a piece of cloth with a logo on it. <laughs> um, anyway, good. I'm, I'm glad that I should be excited. Um, but anyway, in the same way as musicals, which I love, but sometimes at the interval, I'm just like, I need to just go and sit in a quiet room. Yeah. I think, you know, it's relentless gag, 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 gag. And there's, it's all very fast and everything. So I would say, although it is engaging, I found myself drifting off occasionally during a particularly clever one-liner where I thought, oh, I'm, he's done the payoff and I can't remember what the setup was. Sure. Because it's so relentless. So I'd say four. Helen. Oh, sorry, Alex, is you. I was much more beguiled than I wanted to be um, by the very jokes that Ollie has just spoken about. Um, that kind of, that verbal jousting is, I'm a really big fan of that kind of thing. So this film reeled me in much more than I expected to be. And even though I rallied against it, it, it did engage me much more than, than, I, than I thought. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to give it four there, actually. I enjoyed, I enjoyed a lot of the dialogue. I am also going to go for a four. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've say I've seen it a couple of times, so I kind of vaguely knew what was coming, and it does kind of have that. You can kind of drift off a little bit, and then it sort of comes back to you. Kind of thing. Thought you were out. Well, so um, and also, joke, yeah, sorry, I was going to say an hour and twenty-four minutes. So, um, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think like yeah, that. the time factor does play a lot into the repeat viewing score and the engagement mm. score. The time factor can uh, that's what it wins out. I'm going to three point eight. I think it's yeah, I was in there. Um, I did zone out a few times. Um, 
It doesn't matter if you do, though, in a way, because no. the plot is almost nonsensical mm. yeah. and the jokes are very self-contained. And I like that about it, that you you could pick up at any moment and there would be something there to to entertain you. Yeah. One bit that really tickled me that was very silly was the um, the idiots convention with the sign saying, welcome, idiots. <laughs> I might invest in one of those to just hang over my house, to be honest. But you, you, you want to bring the idiots into your house? They come anyway. Okay. <laughs> so they might as well be signposted. Um, okay, that gives us an overall score of 3.48. But we reached out to Twitter, as you guys um, helped us out with. And uh, we asked people, uh, we said, we're reviewing Love and Death um, with Ollie Mann and Alex Fox from the Modern Man podcast. Have you seen it? Tell us your thoughts for an on-air shout-out on Flixwatcher. Uh, we had a couple of responses. Um, Ollie, can you read out this first one? Yeah, this is at Contrarian Prime said, hmm, early Woody, haven't seen it in forever, but it was entertaining with a hilarious ending. Three stars, maybe. Now, the hilarious ending, the actual ending, of course, is him dancing with death and it's not hilarious, it's really protracted. But I presume what uh, they're talking about is the monologue. There's a great down-the-camera monologue, which Woody does just before he's about to be executed, which is basically the end of a stand-up routine, isn't it? But it is properly lol. I need to watch it again. This is also, actually, this is I stand corrected. So there's, so okay, so there's a big monologue that he does just before he's about to be executed. Yeah. And then when he's actually dead, he then does another monologue down the camera. And I only realised this on repeat viewings and I have not looked on IMDb to see if it's true. But I noticed that it's a really tight shot on his face and the rest of the film isn't that tight. And no. if you look behind him, it doesn't look like Russia anymore. You can see a bit of blue sky. <laughs> and I did wonder if in the edit, they were like, you can't end the film with you dancing with death. It's too weird. You need a, you need to Something tell the different. audience it's over. And I think he popped out around the back of Paramount or whatever and filmed it in LA because that's what it looks like to me. Just a little nerdy thing that I noticed. Um, Alex, what, we've got one more, one, more feed, one more bit of feedback from Twitter. I'm still trying not to laugh at the phrase early Woody. <laughs> Sounds like something <laughs> I talk about in the foxhole. Um, Gidget Von LaRue has said, uh, that is my favourite Woody Allen movie. Many exclamation marks. <laughs> Doesn't give a star rating though. But, no. But fair enough. Um, yeah, that's it for now. So we have, like I say, overall score of 3.48. Um, that sounds that's yeah. fairly decent. It's higher than yeah, it's going to be. Three and a half. Yeah. yeah. Half saint, half whore, you might say, if you're quoting the film. He's <laughs> <laughs> hoping I get the half that eats. That is a great line. <laughs> Can I ask a question? Uh, right at the beginning of the film, there is a piece of music that I associate with Christmas. It gave me a strangely festive feeling. But then it then it flips into some like Russian type yeah. vibe, doesn't it? And it, it there's that, that refrain comes back a few times. Yes, it does. It does. So, Why? <laughs> because because it's Russian. Yeah, it's uh, Provokiev, and it's like Russia. It's, I don't think it's anything more sophisticated than that. Okay, oh, I thought there might be more resonance to it or no, a deeper meaning. No, no I'm doing a Russian, Russian spoof. Thing. We're in Russia. Okay. Here's a famous Russian song. <laughs> Fair that. enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, guys, can you let us know and everyone listening, Jeff, um, where we can find you online, your Twitter handles and everything? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and slathered all over the internet at Alex Fox. That's A-L-I-X, one I, like Cyclops, and then Fox, like the animal. And I am at Ollie Mann, O-L-L-Y-M-A-N-N, but much more important than flattering our individual egos is that you please go to whatever app you're using right now to listen to this podcast and subscribe to The Modern Man with two N's. 
It's a magazine show. It's not just about sex. We do trends. We have amazing life story interviews in there as well. And it would mean something to me, friends, if you tried the show and told your friends about it. The interviews are that Ollie does are genuinely compelling as well. You've, you've we do have spoken some, great some really fantastic people, everyone from um, criminals to um, a woman who works specifically with paedophiles to who else we've had, Ollie? We've had some really funny ones as well. The declutterer. She was really helpful. Oh, did you? Was that useful yeah. for you? Yes, a woman decluttering expert. Mm. Yeah, learn how to file away your Woody Allen box set. Yeah. <laughs> so go to the Modern Man, guys. If you're listening to this, you're listening on a podcast app. Just um, it's easy. Type in the Modern Man. It's meander on down there. Yeah. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Bye. Bye. See ya. Thanks for listening. You can find all of the episodes on our website, flixwatcher.tv. Want to give us your five-star review? Follow us at FlixWatcherPod on Twitter. Big shout out to our editor, Brendan Russell, for all his awesome editing skills. And thanks as always to the mighty people for their tunes.